0: Corinthians chapter 10 1st Corinthians chapter 10 as uh we're going to do uh, this 10th chapter in three parts verses 1 through 10 this morning is learning from the past learning from the past uh, a great writer said we don't live in the past we are to learn from the past and too many people live in the past not enough learn from the past and that's what paul wants to do here this morning in chapter 8 paul gave us the principle that even though christians are free to do whatever scripture doesn't forbid forbid them to do you know as long as it's not morally wrong and and if we love as god calls us to love we'll restrict our liberty for the sake of the weaker christians the weaker believers in chapter 9, he shows us, Paul shows us the limitation of, of, uh, in his own life and ministry to keep people from believing he was preaching for money. He wouldn't take a cent from those that he was ministering to. So he would also change his lifestyle in whatever ways he could scripturally without compromise in order to witness more effectively. And in the second half of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9 show us using uh, our freedom how it affects others. Here in chapter 10, it shows us how we use our freedom, again, how it can affect our own lives. In verses 1 through 13, Paul shows how misusing our liberty can disqualify us from serving Jesus effectively. And one of the surest ways to fall into temptation and sin is to become overconfident. And many of the Corinthian Christians thought and maybe said in the letter to Paul in chapter 7 verse 1 that they felt that they had arrived, that they felt that they were standing strong. But Paul felt... Uh, again that that was their mentality based on the sarcastic rebuke he gave them back in chapter 4 verses 8 through 14 when he said oh you guys have already you know you guys already have everything that you need oh you're already rich you don't need anything you're wise and powerful they thought they were strong enough to hang out with the unbelievers with unbelievers in their ceremonies and their social activities and not be affected morally or spiritually as long as they didn't take part in outright idolatry or immorality and over the years i've seen believers you know go to places where they shouldn't go you know because the temptation was there or they went with friends to you know to places where there was alcohol and and you know oh well you know i'm a christian and i don't drink and um and sometimes you know that they fall into that trap Next thing you know, they are drinking. They are doing things that that wouldn't be pleasing to God. So again, Paul tells them, you're only fooling yourself. Abusing Abusing their liberty not only hurt weaker believers whose consciences were offended, but also they put their own spiritual lives in danger. You see, here's the thing. You can't play close to the edge without sooner or later falling off. The mature, loving Christian doesn't try to find out how far can they go uh, in, in their liberty to see how close to evil they can come without being hurt. I want to stay as close to the Lord as I can and not flirt with that, that so-called line where, you know, I'm going to make it to heaven, but I'm really playing close to the edge of hell. Because again, uh, that, that's a dangerous place to be. So let's begin in chapter 10 with verse 1. And Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. The words, Moreover, brethren, is connected to the last verse of chapter 9. Look at the last verse of chapter 9. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And then in verse 10, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers. Uh, we're under the cloud all passed through the sea like I said moreover brethren is, is connected to the last verse uh, of chapter 9 Paul had been just saying that he didn't want to be disqualified he didn't want to be disproved uh, of, of, uh, at the judgment scene of Christ he wanted to get a reward and when Paul says I don't want you to be unaware that is ignorant obviously they were or he wouldn't have warned them that's why he's going to explain to them now The church in Corinth was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now today, a Jewish Christian is not all that unusual. But in Paul's day, it was very unusual because the first Christians were Jews. So when Paul says, all our fathers here, he's speaking to the Jewish part of the congregation. They and Paul were Israelites, and they shared the same history. He said there in verse 1, our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the children of Israel coming out of the bondage of Egypt, and when they did, God provided a cloud for them by day, and He guided them as they journeyed through the wilderness. The cloud would guide them by day, and it would be a shelter from the sun, the hot sun during the day as they traveled. Um, and then uh, that cloud would uh, like, and then all through the wilderness journey, they were guided by that cloud. So that cloud could lead them to the Red Sea where they were totally trapped by the Egyptians. And so they were wondering, well, what's up with that? You know, this cloud that is supposed to be leading us, uh, it leads us to the Red Sea where they were totally trapped by the Egyptians. Now, did God make a mistake? You know, did God mess up when he was looking at the map as to where to go? You know, yet God opened the Red Sea even though he led them there. And Paul likens this to baptism in verse 2. Notice verse 2. And he says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud. Notice, and in the sea. So the baptism of the end of their old life in Egypt, that's what this was, which was a life that was ruled by their flesh. And we've got to remember, Egypt is a type of the world. Egypt is a type of living the life of the flesh in sin, slavery to our flesh. Our whole life is exposed to bondage, slavery of the life of the flesh, the hold that our flesh has over us. Egypt, <clears throat> and again, is a type of slavery to the flesh. Coming out of Egypt into a new relationship with God by water baptism, we reckon that old life, that old life of slavery of the fle- uh, to the flesh, we reckon it to be dead. It's over. It's gone. And as we enter into the new relationship with God through Jesus Christ, coming into this experience now of God showing His power and His provision for us. John Stott said this, Though we live in a world that's often unfriendly and sometimes actively hostile, we're constantly exposed to the pressure to conform. <clears throat> Yet all through scripture, the summons is given to a vigorous nonconformity, and warnings are sounded to those who give into worldliness. In Leviticus eighteen three through 5, it says this. The Lord said to his people after they left Egypt, don't act like the people in Egypt, the people in the world. He said where you used to live or like the people of Canaan, where I'm taking you to live. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my word and be careful to obey my decrees because I am the Lord your God. And if you obey my decrees and my word, you will find life through me. So notice, he says, don't live like the world does. That's where you used to live. You're born again now. You're a new creature in Christ. And don't live like the people in Canaan where I'm taking you. You're not to imitate the way of the world. You must obey all my word and be careful to obey my decrees. Because I am the Lord your God. And then here's the condition. If. You know, we we rarely look at that little word if. But it's all through the Bible. If you obey my decrees and my word. Notice, you will find find life through them. Verses 3 and 4. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ's. God provided manna for the children of Israel all through the wilderness. And He provided the rock that gave them water when they were dying of thirst in the wilderness. And when Moses struck the rock, as God commanded, water came out of the rock. The people drank. They were able to survive that harsh desert heat because of that miracle rock. And Paul tells us that rock was Jesus Christ. The rock that the water of life uh, flowed from flows to us from jesus christ jesus said i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end and i will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts revelation 21 6 but you see it was necessary for the rock to be smitten for that water to flow so god told moses strike the rock Striking the rock is a picture of Jesus being crucified on the cross so that the life-giving water of life might flow from him to us. Now, later in the wilderness, the wilderness experience in Numbers chapter 20 in the desert of Zin, they came to Moses again, making terrible accusations. Why? Because they were thirsty. They were accusing Moses of leading them to the wilderness to die of thirst. And he said to Moses, Hey, man, we we would have been better off if you would have left us in Egypt instead of bringing us out here to follow you into the wilderness. And by this time, man, Moses was fed up. God was too. Moses was fed up with 40 years of of murmuring and complaining. He'd had it with them. And he went before the Lord and he said, Here they are again, Lord. And, and, And it's funny that That neither Moses nor the Lord really wanted to claim them as as their people. The Lord said, your people, Moses, that you let out of the land. And Moses said, they're not mine. They're, They're your people, Lord. So, you know, Moses went to the Lord and the Lord said, all right, go speak to the rock and water will come out, Moses. Moses went out and he hit the rock with the rod. And he said, you rebels, must I strike this rock and give you water? So in anger, man, he clobbered that rock a couple of times. The water came out because God promised so. Picture of God's grace. But God said to Moses, Moses, because you hit the rock, you didn't hallow me in the eyes of the people so you can't enter into the promised land. In other words, Moses, you didn't show them my holiness. You, you, You showed me as angry and mad at the people. And later on, Moses asked the Lord, Lord, please let me go in. Lord, you're a glorious God. You've done awesome things. Let me go in and see the land. You know, he was pleading. He he, he wanted to go in so bad. He'd been doing this for 40 years and now he can't go in. God says, sorry, Moses. Don't ask me anymore. Again, because, again, he he, he misrepresented God. Verse 5. But... With most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. All Israel shared the common blessings of liberty, baptism, and God's provisions in the wilderness. But notice what it says in verse 5. God wasn't pleased with most of them. Out of all the Israelites who left Egypt, only Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter the promised land. Moses and Aaron were disqualified From entering in because of the rock incident. Because of disobedience, all but two Israelites were scattered in the wilderness. The dead bodies of those that God wasn't pleased with were scattered all over the witnesses. All over the wilderness. All Israel had been, I mean, had been graciously blessed by God. He took care of them. He fed them. He baptized them. He watered them. He clothed them. All through the wilderness, he he took care of them. But in that test of obedience and service, most of them failed and were disqualified. Why? They they misused and abused their freedom and their blessings. They were self-centered. They were self-willed. And they tried to live on the edge of their liberty. And what happened? They fell into temptation. And then they fell into sin. Overconfidence was their downfall. Verse 6. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Verses 1 through 5 shows us the liberty that these people enjoyed as a nation. And now here, in this section, we learn that these people abused their liberty. And Moses, I'm sorry, and, and Paul makes this application here for us as well. These things, he says, happen to them, notice, for examples to us. There are, it's a warning to us. As we read what happened to the children of Israel, we, we, we are to, to look at this so that we don't crave evil things like they did. Paul says this was written for you and for me, so we need to pay close attention to it. You see, the Israelites had this wonderful freedom. And what did they do with it? It says they lusted after evil things. What were those things? Well, let's go back and see in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Listen to what it says. Now the mixed multitude who were among them, that is those coming out of Egypt, yielded, yielded to intense craving. They gave into the flesh. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. We remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing. And listen to this sad complaint. Such uh, dishonoring God. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. You know, they sound like our kids sometimes when they look in the refrigerator and say, there's nothing to eat in here. They weren't appreciative of what God had provided for them. We're told they lusted after evil things. Now, what was wrong with the fish and the leeks and the onions and the garlic? Other than maybe they would leave them with bad breath, but the point is, is that they lusted for things that weren't the will of God for them. This was the beginning of their downfall, the the beginning of their desertion of God. You see, it was wrong desires that led them to sin. And that started way back in the Garden of Eden. Where we read that it says, "When, when Eve saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was a tree to be desired to make one wise, know that she took of the fruit and did eat and gave also to her husband and he did eat. It was the desire for something that wasn't God's will for them. What is desire after all? Well, here it was, it was wanting something that, was, that, that God didn't want us to have. It's wanting something outside of the will of God. It wasn't God's will for them to have those things at that particular time. Verse 7. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now, an idol, as we've been learning already in, in the earlier parts of First Corinthians, an idol is anything in your life that you put in the place of God. An idol is, is what dominates your time, dominates your life. Paul quotes uh, Exodus 32, 6 here in, in verse 7. The words eating and drinking refers to the excessive feasting that followed the sacrifices. And the word play here, the word play here is just a less offensive way of saying sexual relations. It means sexual play. It's the same word translated caressing in Genesis chapter uh, 26 verse 8. 3,000 Israelites who had started uh, uh, that idolatrous and moral orgy at Sinai were killed. Some of the believers in Corinth had also gone back to their old ways of worship. And remember, idols represent false gods. Paul said they're gods who are really demons. And Paul warns later on in chapter 10 that you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. The right God can only be worshipped in the right way. And those who try to honor God with immoral and pagan practices, hey, they're not honoring God; they're dishonoring God. And not only that, they're bringing judgment upon themselves. When Christians worship anyone or anything besides the true and the living God, that's idolatry. You know, worshiping Mary or the Pope or saints or statues or angels or whatever—it's idolatry. And it doesn't matter how sincere you you might be here and, and or trying to be in honoring God. This is false worship. And the Bible clearly and strictly forbids it. Exodus 20 verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You don't worship them. You don't bow down to them. You don't make them. There's one God and only one God is to be worshipped. Proverbs, uh, uh, Psalm one eleven nine, 9. The, the psalmist said, Holy and reverend is His name. His name. The holy God is the reverend God. That title belongs only to God. I don't don't think any preacher, any man should be called reverend. There's only one that's reverend. The word word reverend means to revere. It means to worship, to idolize, to adore. Nothing adorable about any man. There's no man that should be worshiped, idolized. Only God has a redemption for His people. So there's there's no one reverend but only God. Only God is, is one who, who deserves that title. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 9, we're commanded to worship God and that command stands for all time. 1 John 5, 21 says, My little children, guard yourselves from idols and that command stands for all time. Verse 8, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, And in one day, 23,000 fell. 23,000 fell. Many people died because of their sexual immorality. And the incident that Paul is talking about here is in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. Now, 24,000 Israelites were killed because of that orgy, verse 9 says. In Numbers. The difference in Numbers between the two passages is probably best explained by taking 23,000 to mean those killed during one day and 24,000 to include others who died later on because of the plague. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. He said, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound, notice, you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should should know how to possess his own vessel, that is his body, in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God. You shouldn't be acting like the the Gentiles who don't know God. He says, and that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness, holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. So why should I live a holy life? Number one, to please God. We see that in verse 1. Secondly, to obey God, verses 2 through 3. And third, to glorify God with your body, verses 4 through 5. Verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Overconfident, after leaving the king of Arad, the Israelites weren't willing to travel around the kingdom of Edom. They showed impatience, they blasphemed God, they criticized Moses, and they hated the manna and they complained all the time about not having any water. In response, remember, God sent poisonous snakes into the camp. And when the people repented of their sin, Moses prayed for them. He made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole. And the people who were bitten, if they would look at the serpent on the pole, they would live. That serpent on a pole is a picture of the cross. Paul writes, Nor let us tempt Christ. Paul teaches that the pre existent Christ was with the Israelites during their desert journey. Two more notes here. First of all, Paul asked, uh, Paul again uses the word us in verses eight and nine. And he uses uh, the word us there in those verses to show that the Corinthians and he are not exempt from God's judgment. They're like the the Israelites in the wilderness. And Israel's victorious warriors showed their impatience by refusing to accept God's guidance, so they they got what they deserved. And as a result, believers in New Testament times, including Paul and the Corinthians, shouldn't follow their own desires. They have to wait for answered prayer and God's providential leading. We do too. And then next in verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul points out that only some of the Israelites fell into sin and died. And of the people who suffered the snake bites, only some died. Those who looked at the bronze serpent on the pole, they lived. Verse 10. Nor complain, as some of them so comp- also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. You know, Going back over Israel's history, you'll find that the people had a terrible habit of complaining against God. Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron. Oh, I'm sorry. They had a terrible um, habit of complaining against God, Moses and Aaron. And because they did it so often, we really can't determine the exact passage that Paul's referring to. But, you know, in light of of this entire verse too here, uh, I'm sorry, verse, Two incidents are likely um, prospects where this happened, where these people you know, died. After hearing the, the, the reports of the spies who had returned from the promised land, remember? They found the beautiful land that they were going to. The whole community complained against Moses and Aaron. Paul says some of them also complained. And, and what Paul says agrees with the story in Numbers chapter 14. Only the 10 men who gave a bad report about the promised land died on the spot because of the plague while Joshua and Caleb lived. Now, the other choice is the story that describes the disrespect of Korah, Dathan, uh, Abiram, and on, Was also 250 leaders. They rose up against Moses in number 16. And not only did all of these people die, but God was also was so infuriated of the complaining of the whole community, 14,700 people died of a plague. That God sent among them. These words are addressed to the Corinthians here. Who might be tempted by some big headed leaders. To complain against Paul. So with this example taken from Israel's history here. That Paul's giving them. Paul skillfully points out. Hey there there are dangers in complaining about God and his servants. Without threatening the Corinthians. Paul teaches them these lessons from history. To encourage them. To have respect for spiritual leaders. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Hebrews thirteen seven it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. You see, our complaining says, when we complain, it says we're not happy with God. We're dissatisfied with God's sovereign will for our life and for the life of others. And it's a sin that God doesn't take lightly, even, even taking into consideration His grace. When God's people question or complain, they're challenging Him. They're challenging his wisdom. They're challenging his grace, his goodness, his righteousness. Our need need for contentment isn't just for our own good, but it's for God's honor and for his glory. Complaining dishonors our Heavenly Father, but contentment glorifies him. Paul said of Paul in in Philippians 4.11 that Paul had learned to be content in whatever circumstances he was in. And he's advising the Corinthians to have this same contentment before they suffer God's discipline. And Paul said in Philippians 2, 14 through 15, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. We are the children of God and we should shine. We should be shining lights in this world. So why why are murmuring and complaining so harmful? If all that people know about church, all right, people outside the church, the world, if all they know about church is that we constantly complain about the pastor, about the leaders, about the people in the church, and all they do is gossip and argue, hey, what kind of impression are they getting? they get the false impression of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Remember, it all points back to Jesus Christ. Belief in Christ should bring those who trust in Him together. Together. So in closing, again, if a church is always complaining, arguing, it lacks the unifying power of Jesus Christ. Christians need to stop arguing with each other or complaining or gossiping about the people or the leadership and the conditions in the church. Instead, we need to let people see. We need to let the world see, you know, and not that that's not what Jesus is about. We need to let the world see and not what we're like. Let the world see what Jesus is And not what we're like. We're to be a light. And if there are problems in the church, which there are, you know, we need to be helpful in solving them and not being the part of the problem. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 1 through 4, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, notice, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and the word endeavoring there means doing everything within your power doing everything within your power to keep the unity and the bond of peace among one another he says to say but the fruit of the spirit is love joy long-suffering kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and his desires. If we live in the spirit, notice if we live in the spirit, and there's a word if again, if we're living in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. We can't say we we, we, we live in the spirit and then walk in the flesh. He goes on, then this is Galatians 5, 22 through 26. He says, let us not be, uh, become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. If we are walking in the spirit, we will not walk in the flesh. So you see, the outward walk must match with the inner standard. If we're walking in the spirit, we will be living in the spirit. Our walk will be in the spirit. And this is what this world needs to see. God's people walking in the Spirit of God. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. And God, help us, help to bring this home to our hearts, Lord. May the Holy Spirit just open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear, Father, and to apply. Lord, if we say we walk in the Spirit, Let the outward demonstration of that walk be obvious, be visible to the world, God. Lord, this world needs to see what Christians are all about. Not what they think they are, not what they've maybe seen in a bad example. But Jesus Christ is our model. He's our pattern. And let us be imitators of Jesus in word and in deed. The Holy Spirit fall upon us, fill us, baptize us, God. Give us the power to walk in the Spirit, God. To glorify you, to honor you in what what people see and in what people do. May you be pleased, Lord. Pleased with your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, Brother Ray Chavez is going to come up.